Thank you, Paul. I'm sure you've had that moment where you're watching or experiencing something and you're pretty sure, right, you've got it all figured out. You know how this is going to go. You know how it's going to end. Uh, and then all of a sudden, something happens. Something changes. Uh, an event occurs or, or some new information is introduced that, that totally changes your perspective. That causes you to look back over everything that you've witnessed and, and reevaluate it, right? Um, uh, singer-songwriter Trevor Morgan talks about a time that he was riding a subway train uh, and there was another man on the train with him and, and his kids were there uh, and, and the kids were being absolutely horrible. Going crazy, uh, not, uh, you know, they, they, were, they were just being unruly uh, and the dad wasn't doing anything. He just kind of was staring off into space, not disciplining his children. You've never been there, have you? All right. And so, of course, just as you can imagine, all the things that run through your mind, right? All the thoughts you have about what an unfit parent that person is, and uh, gosh, if they would just, you know, what those what those kids need is a good spanking. Those sorts of things, right? Are going through Trevor's head, and in the process, he he strikes up a conversation with the guy, uh, and as they're talking, the man says, um, he says, "Well, my wife just died." And I have no idea how I'm going to tell my children. Right? Well, plot twist there. That, that new piece of information changes everything. Changes the way we evaluate and see. We're, it gives us new lenses. Uh, I want to do that this morning. And we're going to take a, a little bit of a departure from our series in Luke uh, now, we're going to use the Gospel of Luke. We're also going to uh, go to Revelation 5, so you can uh, go ahead and put your finger there. But that's not where we're going to start. We're going to start in the Gospel of Luke. And what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to look at a key event in human history, uh, the last hours of Jesus' life. But we're going to look at it from two, uh, two angles, two perspectives and so we're actually going to start in Luke chapter 22. Before we do that, uh, let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we approach Your Word, we just ask that You would help. That You would give, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that understand and believe. Would You transform us by the power of Your Word? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we don't have time to cover everything that happens to Jesus in his final hours. Uh, since we are going through Luke's gospel, we're going to get here eventually and we're going to, uh, we're going to break it up, uh, in small pieces and digest more of it. But what I want to do today, uh, is I just want to read a few of these scenes. And as I do that, I want to, I want you to engage your imagination. Uh, that's why Luke writes. He's not writing cold history here. Uh, as we read, he wants to turn our eyes, excuse me, he wants to turn our ears into eyes. He wants us to see what it is he's saying. So we're going to start in Luke 22. And just as a prelude, you may already know 
that Jesus is betrayed by one of his friends, Judas. Uh, and he is arrested while praying at night in a garden. And when that happens, most of his friends flee. They run away into the darkness. Uh, and Jesus is carried to uh, an impromptu sham court of uh, the Jewish religious authorities for an interrogation. Uh, and as Jesus is interrogated, standing at a distance is his stoutest defender, Peter. And as Peter watches, uh, he begins being questioned by those around him. And as Peter is questioned, just like Jesus is questioned, Peter vehemently denies ever knowing Jesus and brings down curses on himself, curses, curses himself in a sense. Uh, and then, realizing what he's done, he runs away in shame and fear. And Jesus is all alone. And so that's where we pick up the story in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. And then Jesus is carried to Pilate. And then from Pilate he goes to Herod. And we read this in verse 9 of Luke 23. So Herod questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. The chief priest and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And then, in verse 13... Pilate then called together the chief priest and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. She did capture that, that, that Jesus, having been interrogated and mocked and beaten, uh, carried before the authorities, here the Roman governor says, nothing deserving of death has been done by Jesus. Verse 16, I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas a man who had been thrown into prison for a rebellion started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify Him! A third time, He said to them, Why? What evil has He done? I have found in Him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. 
So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Now, if you're watching this from the sidelines, as we kind of are, who would you say is in control of the situation? Certainly not the innocent man at the middle of the storm. Uh, Having been harangued by everyone around him, uh, Pilate basically gives in to the mob and turns an innocent man, gives an innocent man the death penalty, answers to their will. He delivers them over to their will. And, And can you hear their bloodthirsty cries? Crucify! Crucify him! Now watch this next scene carefully. Luke 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. So understated, probably because Luke, uh, the people who were reading Luke's gospel knew what crucifixion was. Odds are they probably had seen one. But for us, uh, maybe it's a, it's a bit of a mystery. Of course, this was Roman torture and execution at its best, at its cruelest. Um, the goal is death by asphyxiation. Uh, that's suspending a person by their arms uh, through with, with nails in their arms outspread. Right, you, you waste your strength trying to push up so that you can breathe. Uh, but slowly but surely your strength fails and as it does you sag down and you can't catch your breath. It was a long and tortuous way to die. And so they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his garments. So as Jesus hangs naked and bloody, just feet above their heads, the soldiers are, are rolling dice to see who will get to walk away with the last stitches of his clothing. And Jesus says, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Even one of the criminals joins in. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself. And... Us. And so, everyone around Jesus, Jesus is alone, he is tortured, he is hung up, 
They gamble for his clothes. They mock him. He is surrounded by insults, even uh, by one of his fellow victims. Luke twenty three forty four. It was now about the sixth hour, that's noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, about three. Even creation responds to the death of Jesus, the sun failing to shine at the brightest part of the day. It was now about the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. Verse 46, excuse me, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. A curious note that we'll come back to. And it was at this moment, Luke doesn't record this for us, but, uh, but Matthew and Mark do. Just before he dies, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the greatest pain that Jesus endured uh, was not the pain of rejection, was not the pain of the whips, was not the pain of the insults, was not the pain of the cross. As, as horrible, as terrible as all of that would have been. That was not the greatest pain that Jesus endured. The greatest pain that Jesus endured was being cut off from His Father. Being the object of His Father's wrath. All of the wrath that sin deserves is poured out on Jesus in this moment. Which is why the sun goes dark. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen to these words that were written in 1804. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear, his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. You and I, no doubt, have endured many unfair, unjust, wrong things. How many times have we said, it's just not right? And what do we mean when we say that? But that we have an understanding of what is right, what is up and down, what is true. And yet, there was never a more unfair, upside-down moment than this one. For a man deserving of nothing but praise, a man who, who had done everything right, at the very least was found by the authorities uh, to not, not deserving of death, but he received it. There is no more upside-down moment in all of history. And from this perspective, it looks terribly, terribly 
wrong. Now let's turn the kaleidoscope and look at Calvary from... We've seen Calvary from earth. Now let's look at Calvary from heaven. Revelation chapter 5. Just a little bit of setup. Uh, just before this, uh, this book is written by a man named John. It's a series of visions that he receives. Just before this in chapter 4, John sees a vision of heaven's throne room. And at the center of the throne room, of course, is the throne. And seated on the throne is the Creator. And everything around him is bowing down and singing his praise. It's a, it's a glorious scene. Uh, And then here in chapter 5, something new is introduced. Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne, that is, God the Creator, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, Uh, Typically, you wrote on one side of a scroll. The other side was hard to write on. But if you had so much you wanted to cram in, you wrote on both sides. And so uh, this is a scroll as full as it can get. Uh, It is sealed up. Uh, And so what we believe this is, is God's eternal purposes waiting to be unfolded. This is God's plan and purpose. It's His will. Verse 2 And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? Do you remember that word? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy? It's not a question of knowledge. It's not a question of strength. It's not a question of ability, but a question of worth. Who is qualified to break these seals and unfold God's purposes in the world? You may be familiar with uh, the story of King Arthur and the sword and the stone. If you're not familiar with that, maybe you're familiar with the uh, Disney movie from the 80s by the same name about King Arthur. Right? And, and you remember that uh, there is a sword that has been buried in this stone. And the legend has it that if anyone can withdraw the sword from the stone, he will be king of the land. And so for years, uh, champions come and try to withdraw the sword and they, they tug and they pull and they grunt. But nobody can free the sword from the stone. Until, uh, quite by accident, uh, this young boy, Arthur, comes and he lays his hand on the hilt of the sword And he pulls it out like a knife through butter. In the same way, we are waiting. John is waiting for the right man to come along. The one who is worthy. Who is the right man for the job? Let's see, verse 3. And no one. The angel cries out and asks, who is worthy? And no one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. All of creation is silent. No one comes from any quarter. No one can step up to the plate. In other words, no one is worthy. Verse 4, And I began to weep 
loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John begins wailing. Why? Because if no one can open the scroll, then all is lost. If no one can open the scroll, then darkness wins. Then God's plans aren't unfolded. God's people are not rescued. God's kingdom does not come if no one opens the scroll. And so John wails at the hopelessness of it. He weeps loudly. And then, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Do not wail. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. John hears that someone has answered the call. There is a champion, a conqueror. He's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, echoing some Old Testament promises about this Messiah who would come from David's ruined house, a shoot coming out of a stump to save the day. You can almost see the elder placing his hand on John's shoulder and saying, Stop crying. It's going to be okay. The lion is here. Now, if I told you to look for a lion, what would you look for? You'd look for a lion, wouldn't you? And John looks, verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. John looks for a lion and he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. When John looks, he doesn't see a a ferocious lion. Uh, One scholar says uh, that when earthbound men uh, choose their animals to represent them, They always choose great symbols of strength. Russia loves the bear. Great Britain loves the lion. Uh, France loves the tiger. The United States, the spread eagle. But the champion of the kingdom of God is a lamb. A gentle lamb. And this lamb has been slain, past tense, standing as though slain, like a, like a sacrifice. And yet he stands fully alive. He was dead and is alive again. He stands victorious, the wounds still visible, and yet with a beating heart. Seven horns denoting his power, seven eyes denoting that he is all-knowing, all-seeing. He has the fullness of the Spirit that he sends out into the world. This is who John sees. And what happens next? He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You see, when the old songs won't do anymore, when a new situation has come that changes the game completely, you need a new song. And so they sing a new song because something new has taken place to do away with the old. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll. Did you hear that? Worthy. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why is he worthy? Because you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed, purchased, bought back people for God from every tribe and language and nation. What is it that make the lamb, what is it that makes the lamb worthy? Is it his seven horns? Is it his seven eyes? No, it's the fact that he spilled his own blood to purchase a people for God. It is because He gave Himself over to death. That is what makes Him worthy. Who is it that needs ransoming? Well, it's people who are trapped. People who are held hostage. This Lamb is worthy because He has given His life so that His people can go free so that they can be uh, ransomed for God. They are bought with a purpose. They are bought so that they can have a new home and a new king and a new purpose. Verse 10, you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. These former hostages who come from every place on the planet. Look, Your skin color, your citizenship by birth, your social status have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. The people of the kingdom come from every tribe, language, tongue, and nation. And this former, this group of former hostages, these redeemed people will reign on the earth. That is the promise. That is what the Lamb has accomplished. And it just keeps going. Verse 11, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands upon thousands. Basically, the point is not to count a number, but to see that it's so many people you can't count it, so many angels you can't count, saying with a loud voice, Worthy! is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy. And then from all of creation, verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So to the Creator and to the Redeemer, to the Father and to the Son, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever 
and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. A word that means true. May it be. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Did you see it? Deserted, mocked, beaten, tortured, dying, surrounded by insults. Save yourself. Who do you think you are? If you're the king, do something about it. Alive. Victorious. Surrounded. Not by insults and mocking, but by praise and worship. Pastor Jean LaRue calls this the right side upping of the upside downness. And that is what Easter means. Easter, because of Easter, everything that is upside down is made right side up. That no no amount of sin and death, right? At, at, at the moment, the, the, the beauty of the good news of Easter is that at the very moment when evil looks to have won, looks to have won its greatest triumph is actually the moment of its undoing. That Jesus takes all the sin and death in the world and flips it on its head. Jesus actually wins by dying. That is the story of Easter. At the end of uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you knew I would quote it, when all is said and done, uh, after the ring is destroyed and Frodo wakes up and he sees Gandalf. He sees Gandalf for the first time uh, since he saw Gandalf fall into the pit. And he said, Gandalf, you're alive. Will all the sad things come untrue? And the answer of Easter and the empty tomb is absolutely yes. Do you believe it? It's true. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for the good news. That because Jesus was rejected and mocked and killed, we are not. That because Jesus was rejected and mocked and killed, he actually received praise and glory. And then he gives it to his people. He gives us the life that He is one. Oh Lord, I pray that we would believe, that we would rest in this hope, that we would worship and adore Jesus as our Savior. We ask it in His matchless name. Amen. Let's stand and worship our God through the giving of our gifts.